Welcome to Where's Home Really? with me, Jimmy Famarewa, a podcast where I get to explore a perhaps lesser known side to my guests from the worlds of TV, film, comedy, food and more to find out what makes them who they are and where they feel that they most belong. I want to know about their heritage, their culture, their background and of course, where they consider home to really be. We'll be finding out about that sense of home by asking them to reveal four key elements, which are a person, a place, a phrase, and a plate. So for me, and I'm going to go straight in on the plate, it would be yam with corned beef sauce, stay with me on this, and some scrambled egg on the side. And that is something that we'd always have at the weekends in my house. And I had it pointed out to me that it's traditionally what you eat after church. So it was kind of the taste of freedom as well as the taste of my youth. But enough about me. I am looking forward to hearing what my guest is going to go for. So let's find out. Two or three skinheads came up to me who can't have been that much older than me and said, are you a packy? And I'd never heard the word before. And I looked at them and just went, no, I'm not. And then they looked at each other and they went, oh, all right. Then. And then just walked off. My first ever racist exchange was such an underwhelming experience for everyone involved. I think they were like apprentice bigots. Today's guest is a broadcaster and author. You may know him from his daily daytime radio show on BBC Radio 5 Live. If you go further back, you might recognise him as MC Crazy A, but I'm sure we will absolutely get to that during the interview. Born in Harlow in Essex to Sri Lankan parents, he started his career in the music industry as a journalist and music plugger before stepping in front of the mic as a presenter at first with BBC Asian Network and BBC Radio 1. He currently lives in Manchester, close enough to his work in Salford, but far away from his beloved Tottenham Hotspur back in London. Nihal Arthanayaka, hello and welcome. Hi, Jimmy. Nice to see you, man. So I always start off with the show title, really, like that question... Where's home really? Where are you really from? You know, there's there's varying versions of it. We all know it. What does it mean to you? And how has that answer evolved over the years? It's really interesting because having lived in Essex and then you move to London and then you leave London and you move to the northwest of England and you then suddenly see the differences between living in the northwest of England and living in London in the same way that you saw the differences between living in London and living in Essex. Except, and this is one thing, interestingly, that Freddie Flintoff said to me, which is that when he lived down south, he massively missed northern accents. And me living now in the northwest of England, I massively miss southern accents i really miss essex accents london accents because you just don't hear them really so when you do you're like wow this is amazing because you say grass and you say bath you don't say grass and bath you don't use words like mytherin which is a word which means to i think annoy or bother someone and you don't know what that word is right you just suddenly go oh i'm really southern and i love being from Essex and London. I love it. 
we're talking about place, so let's kick off right there. What have you gone for as your choice of place that cements this idea of home for you? Weirdly enough, you know, when you're an ethnic minority, you're constantly guarded against people who would say you're not British, right? So you will be constantly saying, uh, I'm British, I'm as British as you to some racist on Twitter, right? Which you shouldn't really engage with racists on Twitter. But, you know, when they start saying, oh, you're not British, you're not that, then you say, no, I'm British Sri Lankan. That's what I am. So I could pick somewhere in the UK, but actually the place I want to spend more of my time in as I get older is a house that we have in Sri Lanka. And I want to spend more time there because we bought one last year And the whole plan is really to spend more and more time there. Because when I go there, Jimmy, I see people who look like me, even though those people, when they hear me speak, know that I'm not them, right? Like I'm born and bred here. I don't speak much of the language. Culturally, I feel Sri Lankan and British, but there's something about the lure of that country. There's something about the energy in that country. There's something about... The fact that even though you're supplanted and put in another country, I've been here for five decades. My parents have been here for six decades. But you're talking about thousands of years. You know, the melanin is here because we grew up in a tropical climate for millennia. That's why we have the melanin to protect us. So the fact that we're here is cool. And I was born here, and I'm British Sri Lankan. But there is something about stepping off that plane, seeing palm trees, hearing nature, seeing the colours that I connect with so instantly. Was it obvious to you? Was that kind of something that was a kind of epiphany that that you only realised how challenging you were finding the grey and the environment that you'd known all your life when you started kind of tuning into this home, that this kind of elemental kind of uh, thing that's deep within you that, uh, yeah, was was that something that kind of was a bit of a light bulb moment or had you always felt something nagging? I'd always felt that when I touched down in Sri Lanka something I can't explain scientifically. I could use the word soul, but I don't really know what that means. Something connects me to the country of Sri Lanka on an emotional level. And that's what I feel. And bearing in mind, it seems like when you move north, especially northwest of England, everyone said to me that lived up here, and had moved when it rains all the time. And you're like, well, it can't rain all the time. And they were like, it rains all the time. So maybe it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you suddenly start to go, bloody hell, it rains all the time here, right? Whereas in London, which, you know, I think statistically is always a couple of degrees warmer most of the time, it just seemed brighter. But also as well, we moved to a very monocultural, we're just south of Manchester in a place called Stockport, which is very white. It's unsettling to be a minority and feel like a minority because I feel that in London, I never felt like a minority. I was never made to feel like I was a minority. But 
my own, and it's purely anecdotal, my feeling is that I feel really like a minority in this part of the world. There can be some quite dark sides to that, you know, of that feeling. There are so many other parts of you that form this home or this identity of who you are that might be in conflict with what someone thinks it means to be a good Asian or what people see as acceptable behaviour or how you're meant to talk as a black kid or how you're meant to behave as a Chinese kid. And I think that is where we get into the interesting part of it. And I think looking at your story and how hip-hop was clearly such a such an important force and such a kind of like, you know, cultural North Star, like when you were growing up and it became your route into your professional career, right? And, you know, we, I, I, I listened to one of your tracks from back in the day this morning, very into it, loving it. Uh, so so I, I really wanted to lock in on hip hop as something that seems from the outside to be a very formative part of of you finding this culture and finding this home and, and building the how that we see today. It's a really important transition from being a brown kid at a white school when skinheads were still around. It was like the tail end of skinheads, but they were still there. And then when you get into like 83, 84, suddenly there are these shows that are playing this music called Electro. So suddenly what happens is all your heroes are people of color, right? So you've grown up in primary school and you're listening to Madness and Adam and the Ants or Duran Duran or any of these kind of 80s bands, and they're all white, pretty much. Then hip-hop becomes a thing. And the white kids want to be into hip-hop. The white kids are wearing tracksuits and carrying around boomboxes and trying to learn how to break dance and rap and graffiti. And they're suddenly looking at people of color in a different way. Not as uh, corner shop owners or taxi drivers or people to be subjugated or people that I'm superior than. They're suddenly hero-worshipping people of color, right? On a mass scale, in my case, in my school, and I discovered that I could rap. I could freestyle rap, which means I could battle rap. And that suddenly gave me credibility. But it also, you know, Fight the Power, Jimmy, by Public Enemy, came out when I was 18 years old. Public Enemy number one, the single, came out when I was 15 or 16. These are pivotal years at which you're trying to find an identity. You're trying to understand who you are, where you fit in the world. And the politics of hip-hop culture was, for me, what I took from it, because I wasn't going to join the Nation of Islam. I certainly wasn't going to walk around with an Africa pendant around my thing because like, I'm not African, right? But what those movements said to me was that there is a history an alternative history that you're not being told about, a history that you have every sense of feeling proud of, ownership of, and agency within. And that was a revelation to me because all the history that I'd heard, I just didn't question it. And it was all white history, right? It was if people of color hadn't contributed anything to the world. So you're a minority in a country, and my gosh, you should be grateful 
because these people built the world. But what hip hop said to me was, that's the that's a narrative, but it's not the narrative. There are plenty of other narratives that you should question and you should be proud of who you are. I mean, James Brown had said it many years before, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. But I heard I'm black and I'm proud and didn't think, oh, that's black people. I thought, no, that's people of color. That's people of color. I should be proud of who I am. We're talking about lyricism. We're talking about rap. So let's hit on your phrase. What is your choice of phrase that really uh, encapsulates home for you? Gosh, there are so many phrases that spring to mind. There are lots that I have encountered through the myriad of extraordinary guests that I have interviewed over the years, right, who have written things down in books, which I've picked out from, and phrases that I've come across over the years, interviews that I've done, books that I've read. I think the statement that really stands out to me is something my dad said to me once, Jimmy, which was, things are only as complicated as you want to make them. And the reason I stick with that is because, you know, the higher you get up in my profession, teams get bigger, more people want to get involved. And it's quite interesting how sometimes people want to make things really complicated. And largely because they're not really sure what they're doing. And I've always really admired people and I've been blessed enough to be on the board of governors of two extraordinarily powerful and huge organizations. One, the British Council, was a board of trustees of the British Council. And the second one was a board of trustees of the South Bank Centre in London, the world's biggest arts centre. And what blew me away about the really excellent trustees that were on both those boards were those who could just see right through all the panic, all the anxiety, all the different issues piling on top of each other, and just strip all of that away and find a clear, coherent solution. Or ask very relevant questions that would help to strip away all the nonsense. So where do you say things are only as complicated as you want to make them. It can sound a bit glib and it can sound a bit too simplistic, but actually it's about finding a path to a solution that is not dragged down by anger, resentment, frustration, and panic, right? That's what it is. And I think that I've become very good at doing that, at seeing that. Welcome back to Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa, and today's guest, the broadcaster, Nihal Arthanayaka. Hi, Nihal. Hello, Jimmy. I want to talk a little bit, while we're kind of on the subject of environments that feel a little bit intimidating, particularly if you come from a minority background, I want to talk about your love of Tottenham Hotspur. You're far away from them now. I know from from you that you're such a passionate fan. Um, when did it all start for you? And was that something that that held any kind of fear or was there any 
family discouragement about going to the football? So we only ever went to two football matches at Tottenham Hotspur when we were kids and then never again. And I didn't then go back to a football match again until I was in my, I would think, mid-30s. So there's probably a gap of 20 years where I didn't go to White Hart Lane to watch Tottenham. Hip-hop culture was everything to me, and football really wasn't. You know, in the 80s, it started off me becoming a Spurs fan because of the early 80s and how well Tottenham did during that time with Glenn Hoddle and Ricardo Villas, Osvaldo Ardiles, Steve Archibald, Garth Crooks, Steve Perriman, uh, managed by Keith Birkinshaw. And it just so happened that the school that I went to in Essex, Glenn Hoddle went to that school. He was an old boy of that school. And it just so coincided that when I joined there in 82, we were an amazing team playing beautiful football with people like Glenn Hoddle in it. So I was in and then hip hop culture took over and music took over. And I just remember music, 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 music. And then I think once I got into my 20s, there was a point at which, especially when I started working in the music industry, it was full of gooners. And we were so bang average year after year. And Arsenal took on this French manager that no one had heard of who revolutionized English football. And the better they got, the worse we got. And the worse we got, the less I cared. It was so painful watching them with Henri and Bergkamp and Overmars and all these guys. Also as well, I felt very much like that football wasn't welcoming to me. Right? As a person of colour, that all my interactions with football fans had been negative ones. We had a lot of West Ham fans in Harlow Town, some of whom were part of their notorious firm, the ICF. And they were violent, racist thugs. Like That's who they were. So you ended up kind of slightly tarring football with a thing that, you know what, there's hip-hop over here, which is all welcoming to me as a heterosexual person of colour, and then there's that lot over there who are kind of racist and violent and they're racist and violent while going to watch football. So I'm going to stick over here, if that's all right with you, with the break dancers, the graffiti artists, the rappers and the DJs. It was a really simple choice. And I think that the scars of that... So even today, Jimmy, I cannot really get excited about England. That is interesting. And football as a kind of, as a particular area that, that these different versions of ourselves almost come into not necessarily conflicts with each other, but they kind of overlay. And I definitely feel it. I'm a Charlton Athletic fan, you know, season ticket at the Valley. There's always a point at which, you know, watch England with my friends and stuff, and there'll always be a point at which, not even if it's necessarily like racism directed at black people, but there's a there's a song that's about the Welsh fans or whatever, and I just kind of recoil from it. And there is so many positive things happening with fan bases becoming more diverse. But it's interesting that you should say that because there is always, 
or there can be if you are a minority and particularly if you come from a minority background where you're always slightly on edge like if you if you're in those environments but I, I do think that is changing in so many places in so many ways yeah I'd like to think so I definitely like to think so but I wouldn't go to West Ham Tottenham I wouldn't go I wouldn't take my my kids to that ground as a Spurs fan I do take my boy to Old Trafford. We have done for the last five seasons to watch us usually get beaten by Manchester United. Even when they're terrible, they still manage to beat us. So we still manage to do that. But I do have a conflicted relationship. And actually, what got me massively back into football was my son. You know, it was my son. Because a friend of mine who's a a shoe designer, he owns a Grenson's, right? Tim Little. And Tim's a big Derby fan. And he said to me, you know, one of the things that keeps me and my grown-up son bonded together is our love of football. So even though his son might be in a different part of the world, when Derby are playing, he'll call him and they'll have a connection. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. And it has led to me loving Tottenham through him, really. I want to get onto your person you've mentioned a lot of people that have been important figures in your life who have you gone for as the person that encapsulates this sense of home and sense of belonging for you this is such a difficult question because always you know people think of their parents you know as that person and of course those people encapsulate home so it's a very difficult question to answer because you think of not wanting to let anyone down not wanting to insult anyone not wanting anyone to think of it and the person I think of as home is me right because ultimately there's a a saying in Buddhism which is man has no refuge but man which means that And that is, of course, woman has no refuge but woman. And I take that to mean that no matter what I do in the world, no matter what I say, ultimately, I have no one to rest on than myself, right? Now, they say no person is an island, but if I need to think of someone as home, I have to be comfortable around me, you know, One of the most difficult things, I think, for many humans is to be comfortable in their own company and to be comfortable in the quietness, the solitude of being with yourself. And it's a real real achievement, I think, for you to be truly happy in yourself. And I'm not, right? It's an aspiration. Nobody gets to tell me how Asian I am or not. In the same way, no one gets to tell you how Nigerian you are or not, right? That is up to you. I find it quite easy to touch down in Sri Lanka, have a glass of Arak, which is the local coconut whiskey, eat curry, rice and curry in my hands, walk barefoot, go to the temple, 
I don't feel weird about any of that in the same way that I don't feel weird about going to watch Tottenham play or dancing to drum and bass or going into my favourite clothes shop in Stockport and buying Japanese streetwear, right? Like, I don't feel a way about any of that. You mentioned briefly there the curry and rice in Sri Lanka. What is your dish? What is your plate that you're going for? So my mum's sister, Auntie Marnell, who, again, sadly is not with us anymore, she moved to the UK. And the first time I was ever called the P word was when we went to visit her in East Ham, a part of London. And I was in a WH Smith's looking at magazines and these two or three skinheads came up to me, who can't have been that much older than me, and said, are you a packy? And I'd never heard the word before. I was maybe 11 or 12. And I looked at them and genuinely innocently, because I just thought it was a case of mistaken identity, I just went, no, I'm not. And then they looked at each other and they went, oh, all right. Then. And then just walked off. My first ever racist exchange was such an underwhelming experience for everyone involved. I wasn't offended. They were disappointed. It was just really bad, right? It was really bad. They were, I think they were apprentice bigots at the time. And uh, they must have gone back to a tutor or something and then asked about it, And then they got a D minus for that project or something. Uh, it was an outreach program for whatever racist course that they were doing at the time. So going back to Auntie Marnell, right? So Auntie Marnell would come and visit us in Essex. And she was a bit austere. She was very, very strict. And she never married she worked as a psychiatric nurse in one of those old, scary Victorian asylums that they got rid of in the like in the seventies and eighties. They got rid of, but she she worked in one of those. So she would turn up, and we never really look forward to her coming, right? Because she was so strict, and she was she wasn't the kind of warm, cuddly auntie, right? She was the kind of little bit scary auntie. I once remember opening the door to her and saying, when are you going? That was the first thing I said to her. She only walked in the door, right? So this is the kind of relationship, right? But there was one reason, Jimmy, that we looked forward to her coming. And that's because she made a dish that my mum couldn't make. And it's called Godumba Roti. G-O-D-U-M-B-A, roti, R-O-T-I, Godumba roti. Now, this is a cardiovascular catalyst, right? You eat one of these things, you better have, you better have a defibrillator handy, right? Because <laughs> this stuff is not healthy, right? So you get this dough, you make this dough, get it into a ball, and then you soak it in oil overnight, right? So you have to soak it in. Then what you have to do is you have to keep rolling it and rolling it so it's flat. So it's almost like you can see through it. It's that thin by the end of it, soaked in oil. And then you put it on a hot plate and you make this roti and you put egg on it if you want to make egg gordomba roti, which is outstanding. And then you have that with a chicken curry 
It's pure village food, right? This is no oat cuisine. This is nothing that spent, you know, decades having to make and it isn't all fancy. It's a godamba roti or an egg godamba roti and a chicken curry. And boy, you are full. You are happy. You are connected to your culture and you may get a heart attack. <laughs> so it's got all of these things yeah. attached to yeah. it. And it is the best, best thing. We've touched on Sri Lankan food there. In a broader sense, what are some of the impacts that you think maybe Sri Lankan culture has had on the UK? Because it does feel like there's much more knowledge about Sri Lanka more generally. Are there any specific examples you can think of? Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I am one of the probably three highest profile Sri Lankan or Asian broadcasters in the UK, right? It's like Michelle was saying on the Today program, Naga Manchetti and me, you know, Naga and I've got probably the only two Asians that I can think of to have our own daytime shows on a national radio network, right? And I'm Sri Lankan. And the, probably the biggest Asian comedian in the UK is Ramesh, right? Ramesh Ranganath, who's also Sri Lankan. And he did Asian Provocateur, where he went back to Sri Lanka and talked about Sri Lanka and immersed himself in a culture he didn't know anything about. And he talks about Sri Lanka a lot, you know, and reps his cultural heritage, which I think is amazing. Look, we're from a tiny island and we're often mistaken to be Indians or Pakistanis or whatever. And I think we've we've done all right. I think the great thing about Sri Lanka, Jimmy, is that so many people have an affinity to Sri Lanka because of their honeymoons or their weddings or the best holidays they ever had. I mean, the amount of people that say to me, Sri Lanka is the best holiday we ever went on is extraordinary, right? It really is. What do you think that is? Is that just the, the, the people, the beauty of the place? Is it all of it put together? Sri Lanka is just this really beautiful, chilled, where in the space of two weeks, you can go whale watching, surfing, go and look at 1,500 or nearly 2,000-year-old uh, architectural marvels, right? Like you can climb up Sigiriya and be on top of a fortress that was carved out of a rock, the entrance to which is two giant lion paws made by a prince who escaped after killing his own father, right? You know, you can you can do all of these things. You can buy incredible gems, rubies and sapphires. You can see turtles hatching. You can swim along with tropical fish. You can go to unbelievable beach raves. You can do all of these things, and see three different lots of colonial architecture, Dutch, Portuguese, and British, and original Sri Lankans, like I said, going back centuries. You can be in rainforests one moment, and then an elephant orphanage, watching a hundred elephants walk past you on their way to the river to get their bath time. It's, it's just, I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, it really is extraordinary. We started off in Sri Lanka via... Uh, Essex slash Stockport slash London. And so it's amazing to end up back there. Uh, Nihal, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Thank you for taking us on such a journey. Thank you for letting us in to what makes you who you are. And uh, thank you for introducing 
that roti dish to our lives. I'm going to go out and find it right now. Please do, uh, but only do so if you have an active gym membership because you're going to need to work that off, Jimmy. Thank you for your great questions. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Nihal. Take care. I really, really loved chatting to Nihal then. Um, He's someone I've admired a lot from afar. I think there's a lot of crossover, but he also comes from a kind of fascinating generation and talking about hip-hop culture and what Public Enemy meant to him and the notion that picking himself as the person, that he is the home that he kind of carries around with him was just fantastic. And it was so eye-opening. It was so much fun. He's just a joy to be with and he just really makes you think in the best possible way. So that's it for another episode of Where's Home Really? Please join me next time for more unique stories of culture and heritage as we ask our guests to reveal what home really means to them and get to see a side we perhaps never knew. And we'd love you to follow Where's Home Really on your favourite podcast platform. We've been getting some fantastic feedback and it's great to hear your thoughts, so do leave us a comment or a review. From Podomo and Listen, this has been Where's Home Really? Hosted by me, Jimmy Famarewa. The producers are Tayo Popula and Aidan Judd. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. And for Listen is Kelly Redmond. Until next time. Listener.